Take your Bibles, please, and turn them to Nehemiah chapter 6. This morning, we continue on with our study in the book of Nehemiah. It's been a blessing to me. I mentioned it. I was with a pastor who pastors in Sugar Grove, North Carolina, just outside of Boone, uh, just yesterday. Did I get a yay on that? Don't you love Boone? Even when it's rainy, it was nice up there. And um, Sugar Grove, could there be a more southern name of a town than Sugar? Probably Sugar Grove. That's the way it's supposed to say it, but anyway. Uh, he's a cousin of my wife and um, just a wonderful, wonderful man of God up there. And we were talking and I said, where are you tomorrow? This is kind of talk preachers do like, where are you tomorrow? He's in Psalms. He said, where are you tomorrow? And I said, we're in Nehemiah. He said, oh, I love Nehemiah. And uh, it's been a rich book with a pr- some pretty easy application, if we're honest. Like we don't have to do a whole lot of theological straining to find some application in this. There are some things in life that are worth fighting for. There are. There are some things in life worth dying for and worth being committed to and giving our all and not letting anything distract us or get us off message or off point. Some things are that way. But let me just give you a newsflash. Everything isn't that way. Have you met these folks? Every hill is a hill to die on. They're ready. I mean, they're loaded for bear shortly after you say, hello, how are you, right? How's your day going? I'm glad you asked. And they're ready to just unload on you about everything that's wrong with the world and how they've got all the solutions. Interestingly, they've never been elected to office or asked to lead anything. And so that's, I find that interesting as well. But everything is not worth fighting for. If you watch the news for about 30 minutes or you listen to talk radio for about two and a half minutes, it will seem like everything is worth fighting about. And, and every hill is a hill to die on. According to our news media today, everything is a crisis. That's what generates the new banners across the bottom, the flashing things. I flipped over to a news channel just recently and saw there was a, something on the side, there was a graphic for the host, and then there was this ticker running on the bottom. What do I follow? Well, I followed the flashing thing that said crisis alert, crisis alert. It wasn't a crisis. Some celebrity had bought a new car or something. I don't know what it was, but according to... Uh, Much of the media and much of celebrity culture today, every cause we have to be committed to. If you follow this celebrity long enough, by the time they get to their eighth or ninth cause, you're either broke or distracted and don't know what to fund, and one of the cause contradicts the other cause, so you don't know which one to follow anymore. It's hard to keep up with everything, and let me, as your pastor, maybe you're our guest this morning, let me just say, as a Bible-preaching pastor, give you a pass. I'll write you a note if you need one. You don't have to participate in everybody else's crisis. Amen? You don't have to get on the roller coaster ride that everybody keeps buying you tickets for to get on with them and say, hey, this is great. You don't have to do crazy with everybody else. You don't. Newsflash. Um, and we control a lot of that content and consumptions more than we think we do. Some things, though, are worth fighting for. Some things are very very much worth fighting for. And I'm not talking about preferences. I'm talking about convictions. And when I'm talking about convictions, I'm talking about biblical convictions. Convictions to truth and right and reality. And they will cause you to behave differently when you get on task and on mission and start heading down that way. 
Nehemiah maybe doesn't find himself dealing with all of the cultural nuances that we're dealing with today, contending for, can we just take a breath and say, some of us are having to contend for reality. Like, not an ideology, just that reality (laughs) is what it is. But when you deny the truth, you're denying reality. And, And when you deny reality, I've got news for you, contrary to what culture says, you are denying beauty. And so there's beauty in following God's word and God's way. The battle has intensified so much for many of us in the past just couple of years that worldview wars are playing out in front of us. Truth is worth fighting for. Reality is worth fighting for. Our children's hearts and minds are worth fighting for. The church's mission is worth fighting for. Uh, Let me just step back on one. I rushed away from it too quick. I don't want to camp out here too long, but I heard a quote recently and said, if somebody came to my door, knocked on my door, and said, I'm here to molest your mind and abuse you, humiliate you and disgrace you, can I come in? Well, I think I would find the bolt pretty quick on that, right? You'd slam the door. And then they say, wait, wait, wait. I want to do it to your children too. We would slam the door, we'd post a neighborhood watch statement, we might even go grab Granny's shotgun and sit on the porch. Don't you come back here, right? No, you can't do that, and yet we invite media streams daily that do that to our own minds and to our children's. I won't sound old school preacher the whole sermon, I promise, but mercy, God help us. Some things are worth fighting for. Nehemiah may not have known about some of our cultural struggles today, but he knew what it was like to be attacked, distracted, folks contending for uh, their version of truth, which was not true. And he knew that God's glory and God's work was worth fighting for. As governor of Jerusalem at the time, he's mobilizing the people of God to rebuild the walls and the gates of the city because God had commanded him to do that. This was worth doing well, and it was worth doing in a way that glorified God. It's worth mentioning again that Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Chuck Swindoll makes the statement that Nehemiah led from the knees up. Wow. Boy, I'd love to be your pastor and lead and shepherd you and my family from the knees up. All through the book of Nehemiah, he is seen praying and calling the people to prayer and encouraging others around him to pray. He learned the importance when he prayed for months in Susa, asking God to do something. And God's answer to doing something was, I'm going to send you, Nehemiah, and I'm going to send you with everything you need to get it done. As we come to our text this morning in Nehemiah chapter number 6, if you'd look with me at verse 1, hang with me. We've already read it. I'm not going to go back and reread all of it. I want to put verse 1 on the screen and you to look at the second part of verse 1 with me. There's a, there's a monumental thing that's happened. I mean, there's some work that's gotten done. If you look, it says, And when the enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not yet set the doors in the gates. So the work is going forward. The gaps are being closed. I don't mean the stores, although I think those are being closed too. But the, works are, the work is going forward, the gaps are being closed, the doors aren't quite yet hung, so we have some of the work done, but the work is not finished yet. The wall is nearing completion. 
So why are the nations around them? Why is Sanballat and, or if you're southern, Sanballat, depending on how you say it, right? Isaac, thank you for that this morning. Why, 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 are, why is the work, why is it such a big deal to those neighbors around them, especially if you're joining us for the first time? You're like, who are these names? What's going on? Well, Nehemiah's gone back to rebuild Jerusalem because that was the seat, really, of the glory of God here on the earth. And, and it was really the main thrust here is not just rebuilding a wall or repopulating a city. It's that the people would worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The goal is worship. By the way, the end, um, spoiler alert, the end game here is the worship of God, not just a city being restored. The goal of what we do as church is not just building a brand or filling pews or, or, or programming you to death throughout the week. That's not the goal. It's not, it's not even the way Grace Covenant does things. But our goal as we grow is not just to grow to say that we're growing. Our, our goal is to worship the Lord in the beauty and splendor of his holiness, and to equip you to do the works of ministry outside the walls of this church. When I read the New Testament, that's what it's for. And so here we see Nehemiah getting in and and rebuilding this wall, and the neighbors are are ticked off about this. Why? You ready for this? It's really theological. Money, 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 money. That's in the marginal notes there, but. You see, they didn't, since Jerusalem wasn't really established, they were making a killing on all the trade routes. They would literally march through the city and ignore everybody that was there. Ezra and his contingent, the other contingents that were already there. They would just ignore them and plow through that. Israel got no trade uh, interactions with all that happening on. There, there, there's a lot of cultural things happening in this day and age around this time that, that are ripping God's people off. And they weren't fortified to do anything about it. So it was a threat to the pockets. Watch this. Hear me now. The, the, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I believe I've read that somewhere. And people will do crazy and strange and evil things when money is involved. They're wanting to do it. They don't know their pawns in the hand of the enemy and there's a bigger thing at play. We'll come back to that in just a few moments. I want us to look at some of the ways that Nehemiah pressed through some of the opposition that we're going to see here in the text. If you're taking notes, your note, I think your big header for chapter 6, you probably have one uh, in your Bible up there. But I, I would give you one for a sermon this morning to say, uh, pressing on or press on through opposition. Pressing on through opposition. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem and the rest of the enemies realize that the wall was near completion. They see their window closing. If they're going to stop this thing, if they're going to shut it down, they've got to pull out all the stops, and they do. They've been hurling insults for quite some time. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, they invite him to come to Ono. And Nehemiah said, oh, no, you, no, I'm just kidding. That's, I won't, we won't do that. But they invite him to come there. Now, what's special about that place? I want you to think about this. I don't know how many of you have done extensive yard work in the heat, right? You do just yard work. Um, when I first became pastor here, I looked out and I thought, who is that distinguished-looking gentleman mowing our grass? It was Dr. Hall out there with a hat on, pushing, smiling, mowing the grass. In the heat, I'd go take him some lemonade or something. He's like, I'm fine, right? You, you ever been out working in the yard in the heat? You're overwhelmed in the heat, and then somebody brings you just a cup of refreshing ice-cold water or lemonade, whatever it is, and you're transported for just a moment back to civility. 
Yeah? Nehemiah is not a leader doing this, walking around just managing the work. He's managing the work while he's building the wall and encouraging others and praying. And so he's all up in it. And they invite him to, you ready for this? It was an oasis. I mean, this was like a resort place. It was only four and a half hours away on a horse. And he could have gotten there on camel or horse pretty easily and got back. It seemed like a reasonable request, but Nehemiah knew it for what it was. Here's what it is. You ready? It was a dart of confusion. The enemy was firing his first dart in chapter 6, and the enemy is firing a dart of confusion. You see, these people had been insulting Nehemiah. They had been trying to tear down everything. They're like, you know what? Hey, let's have a meeting. Let's talk about things together. Let's negotiate something. There's something here. You watch this. The church has laid over time and time again for political expediency and compromised on the truth of God for legislation, and we've been led asunder every time. No politician has kept their promise to the church. Your hope and my hope is not in D.C., it's not in Raleigh, it's in King Jesus alone. And we better do well to remind ourselves, even on September the 11th, that we are citizens of a kingdom whose builder and maker is God first before we claim allegiance to anything on this earth. They say, come, let, let us reason together. Let's, let's have a talk. Let's meet in a pleasant location. On the surface, it seems reasonable. But Nehemiah knew what was up. He said in verse 3, they intended to do me harm. Actually, verse 3 says, I sent messengers to them. I'm not coming down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He rejected their invitation four times they invited. He resisted the temptation. He probably came off cold and indifferent and out of touch and out of step with reality. And I'm sure there were some that said, you know what, he should at least go meet them and talk to them. But Nehemiah knew something was up. He knew in 400 B.C. what Paul wrote about in the New Testament to the church at Corinth. He said, God is not a God of confusion but of peace. And Nehemiah was unsettled because the Lord had him to be unsettled at their request. When God's people are working together, make no mistake, when we're working together for the glory of God, the enemy will fire a dart of confusion and try to mess things up to get us off task. He'll do it to you, mom and dad, while you're raising your kids. He'll do it to you, husband and wife, while you're trying to have a marriage that honors God. He'll do it to you, young lady, young man, while you're trying to live a life that's set apart in purity to the Lord God. He'll fire down a confusion. He did it in the Garden of Eden. I'm getting ahead of myself. When he said, did God really say? Another weapon he used was the dart of scandal. The dart of scandal. Four darts used here. A dart of scandal in verses 5 through 7. Well, they couldn't trick Nehemiah to come to this sham meeting, so they, just, they set out to destroy his credibility. After he refused the invitations, they threatened to publish a false report. It's already been read, but I'll throw it on the screen just for reference. Verses 6 and 7, they said, look, it's reported that um, you're building the wall because you want to rebel. And, and, and you, Nehemiah, want to become their king. And, and verse 7, and, and you've set up prophets to talk about you, and, and this is bad, and, and we're going we're gonna to send these reports to the king. We're going to publish this. This is going to take you down. This is going to be a scandal. I, I, I love Nehemiah's response. He, he said, that's not true. We know it's not true. Everybody knows it's not true. And guess what he did? He got right back to work. <laughs> 
He, he, he says in verse 8, nope, that's not true. And then in verse 9, he reflects in what looks like a diary entry of Nehemiah. He said, they wanted to frighten us, thinking that, oh, their hands will drop from the work. They'll be so afraid, they'll, they'll stop working. And Nehemiah says, God, strengthen us. We're not going to be frightened. Can I tell you, if, if a man stands in a pulpit and the only way he can motivate his congregation is by fear and guilt, that's not of God. And when society is trying to motivate you to actions that alter your life course and cause you to compromise on some convictions and question, and they're using fear and guilt to pull you away, that's not of God. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of a sound mind. Nehemiah said, oh no, no thanks. They wanted to frighten us, but God strengthened us. So we've seen a dart of confusion. A dart of scandal attempted. That didn't shake Nehemiah. It didn't intimidate him at all. We stopped our corporate reading at verse 9. It picks up in verse 10 with the next dart. Here's the one. Ready? A dart of compromise. Wow. A dart of compromise. Verse 10. The Bible says, When I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Still, this sounds reasonable. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. You're too important to be so visible, Nehemiah. You're vulnerable. You're exposed. People want to kill you. They want to cause harm to you. You should hide to protect yourself. Come and hide in the temple. Now this, again, sounds like people are looking out for him, doesn't it? Oh, let, let us take these things off your plate. Let, you, you come and, and do it this way. Come, just come and hide over here and, and, and lead from behind closed doors. And Nehemiah says in verse 11, Should such a man as I run away? A, a, and what? Man such as I could go into the temple and live. I'll not go in. What is he saying? I'm not a priest. I don't belong in the temple. I'm the leader. I'm here to serve. I'm serving God's people. I want to do what God's called me to do. He sees right through this veiled attempt. Here's the truth. You want to know the truth of what was happening? They were luring him into the temple so they could kill him in the temple. What? Anybody ever told you the word of God was boring? Hasn't read it. This is like... Columbo kind of stuff here. He goes, one more question, right? Just asking a question. I've been watching too much Columbo recently. Sorry. Nehemiah is not one of those types of leaders that's going to hide behind the lines. He, he sees right through it, verses 12 through 13. And then I understood and saw that God had not sent them, but he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. <gasps> Do you mean preachers can be hired to, spe to spread false things? You betcha. Even in 2022. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. Compromise on truth always, always leads to sin. Always. Compromising on biblical truth leads to sin that I should act in this way at sin, and so they should give me a bad name in order to taunt me? So how did he respond? What did he do? Who did Nehemiah run to? Did he get his counsel together? No. What was the thing the Holy Spirit wanted us to know about Nehemiah's response? We see it in verse 14. He starts talking to God, like stops one breath and starts the next. Remember Tobiah 
and Sanballat, O God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Fear will not motivate you to sustain a work for God. That's not how this works. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in, say it, prayer. Still a man of prayer. As these fiery darts are being fired at him. Darts of confusion, but he kept pressing on. Darts of scandal, but he kept pressing on. Darts of compromise, but he kept on pressing on. And then the narrative shifts in verses 15 and 16. If you look with me, something fantastic happened in verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. If you don't have in 52 days underlined in your Bible, that's pretty remarkable. I don't even think you could get a contractor to come out and look at something in 52 days right now. I'm not throwing contractors under the bus. They're just busy, right? They're just busy. It takes time to get stuff. And you're like, can you repair this for me? Yeah, I can repair it. I can be here next week, but I can't get the supplies because they're on a ship coming across to you know, Bering Strait somewhere. And we're seven months before Ted was telling me at one point in the process, he was waiting on supplies for a job that would take six months to arrive. This was a while back. I'm like, what? Wow. 52 days they completed the work, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Wow. God's people did God's work, God's way, and the neighbors and the nations were drawn to acknowledge the one true living God. That's why it matters the way we do church. That's why it matters the way we do ministry as a church, family together. That's why the elders are so concerned about certain matters and the way that they happen because when we do God's work, God's way, Grace Covenant doesn't get the credit. God does. God does. It's important. It matters. It matters. Well, man, the wall's built. Story's over. The enemy's going to give up now because they've seen. If only that were the case. The final darts that are fired here in chapter 6 as we finish up our text this morning are darts of division. Darts of division. This one's more sinister. It takes more time. And mercy does this one sting quite a bit. Look with me at verses 17 through 19 in your Bibles. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. Now, wait a minute. I thought Tobiah was outside the city and was an enemy. That's right. So the enemy has a contingent inside. How did that come about? Can I paraphrase for you? Oh, you go back and read the text. But remember how God back on, way back, way back in the Old Testament said, don't intermarry with pagans. He told his people, he told them that more than once, if my memory serves me correctly. Like, hey, you're going to go occupy a new land. Don't intermarry with the enemies. It never ends well. There's no account in Scripture where that ended well. Well, guess what happened? Somebody intermarried with some of Tobiah's family. And so Tobiah has a hold on families. And some of them are nobles. And so there's this tribe, there's conversation going on that's designed to unsettle Nehemiah. In fact, it says Tobiah even sent letters 
to Nehemiah to make him afraid. People would get in Nehemiah's presence and say, hey, you know, Nehemiah says, good job on the wall, but that Tobiah, man, now he's a real leader. Nehemiah's like, our enemy? What are you talking about? I know he's an enemy, but you know, I tell you what, he's a real leader. He's got, but they would say kind things about the enemy in front of Nehemiah. People had sworn uh, allegiance to Tobiah in a way that undermined the work. The seeds of a coup were being planted. This little faction was trying to stake out ground that was theirs. They were selfishly motivated. Why? Because they weren't getting something they wanted. So they thought, well, let's get everybody together that thinks like us. And we're going to demand some things that we want. That's direct disobedience from the way that God had set it up. It's direct disobedience and it's the result of disobedience from intermarrying with folks they shouldn't have intermarried with. The enemy is attempting to cause a rift and to stir up division. Again, you have to ask yourself, really? Like if you're reading this, if somebody handed you the book of Nehemiah, you start reading, you're like, really? For building a wall? I mean, they're so jacked up about them building a wall. What is going on here? What's so magnificent about this wall? Pastor Norm reminded us last week that it wasn't even as high as the wall previous. I mean, they couldn't recreate the splendor of what Solomon had. They're, they're just trying to rebuild something that functions and that works. What's going on here? There's something far more going on here than just a wall being built. Something more than a construction project to fortify a city and reestablish a national identity. Why would the enemies care so much? It's more than money at this point. They know better. And Nehemiah knew better. I know he's in the Old Testament. I know where he is in the timeline. But I'm convinced Truth is truth. And Nehemiah knew that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Nehemiah knew there was something more, something more sinister, even than these fiery darts being fired at the work of God. Remember, church family, the wall, the city, is a means to an end. The rebuilding of the city, the temple, is a means to an end. What is the end? The end is covenant worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of this Bible. The end is them recognizing what John would write down in Revelation 4. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. Nehemiah isn't sticking this out because he's hopeful to make architectural digest in a 52-day project. He's not sticking this out because he's trying to prove something to Artaxerxes, the king that sent him. He's not sticking this out to approve his investors. No, he's not sticking this out to make a point to the enemy. He's doing God's work. And he wants to do it God's way so that God gets all the glory. Why? Because he knows God is worthy. God is worthy, look at the verse, to receive glory. God is worthy to receive honor. God is worthy to receive power. He knows that God is the creator, and he knows that God, the creator, is the ruler. These are the facts. This is the truth, and this is beautiful. This is reality. This is worth fighting for. This is worth pressing on. He's in charge. He is sovereign over all that exists, and all that exists was created for him, 
and by him. Church, this is our God. It's why I get up in the morning. It's why I lay my head down at night on a pillow resting in the fact that he is in charge and he's worthy of worship. Let the church say amen. He was worthy when he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. He was worthy when he called Abraham out of Ur. He was worthy to be followed when he spoke to Moses through a burning bush on the mountain and then in the tent of meeting. He was worthy, so David sat down and wrote song after song after song, saying, worthy are you, O God and King. He was worthy when he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. He planned it before the foundation of the world. Even while you and I were sinning as much as we could sin, he loved us and sent Jesus to die for us. He was worthy then. And because he is the God that doesn't change, he is worthy today. He will be worthy for all eternity. He will be worthy of all glory, all honor, and all power for all eternity. There's a spot for an amen. God is worthy. He is worthy, and Nehemiah knew it. There's more at play than just these little distractions going on. Something bigger is at play, church. There's more at play than just the enemy getting a foothold in media or the enemy messing with you or things happening here and there or why is there such hostility against the church? Jesus said, Father, I've given them your word and they'll be hated by the world. There's coming a time when we won't be tolerated any longer. Why? Because we're bigots? No. Because we're mean-spirited? Uh-uh. Because we're hateful? No, we're the opposite. But when people believe a lie, they hate the truth. The enemy nations hated the truth that God was worthy and that a people would come and lay down their lives, ignoring the fiery darts fired at them. Because God was worth it. Church family, there's something more at play here than just us wooing men and women and boys and girls to come and sit on a pew and mark an hour on a Sunday morning. There's more at play than us just drawing families, little families, big families, all families in between. We're not trying to grow a club or a membership organization or a community service provider. That's not what the local church is according to God's word. We're not interested in advancing a brand or putting on a show. That's not what the local church is, according to God's word. We are interested in growing as a local church because it is the spiritual authority established by Christ here on this earth after he left to give shape to our walk and worship as disciple-making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. And the enemy hates it. Welcome to the dance. Jesus paid for your ticket, and he's already crushed the enemy. Doesn't mean he won't distract. Doesn't mean he won't fire fiery darts, but I want to tell you something. This is worth fighting for. Your relationship with Jesus is worth fighting for. Shut out the noise. Don't let that intruder into your home. It wants to mess with your mind and family. The enemy, Satan himself, knows this all too well. That's why he used the dart of confusion in the garden when he approached Eve and said, did God really say that? That's why he used scandal with David. A king who had it made in the shade was almost destroyed with a love affair, a murder, and the death of his child. He was scarred 
but he was still called a man after God's own heart. That's why he tried to use compromise with Jesus Christ himself when the devil in Luke 4 takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world that didn't belong to him and made a promise he had no intention of keeping and saying, bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, I'm, I'm not going to do that. No, get out of here. It is written. It is written. It is written. And one of the devil's favorite tools in the local church today is division. He uses it in big churches, little churches, church plants, established churches, liturgical churches, free will in churches, all churches, division. It begins with selfish ambition. It's fueled by gossip and it spreads like can cancer. That's why God set up elders to keep a watch over the doctrine, teaching, and high-level administration in the church. But here's the deal. The local church, that's you. The congregation, the worshiping congregation humbly endeavor to live and to love in such a way that we hold one another accountable to stay on mission, to not be distracted, to have the shield of faith, to quench the fiery darts of the enemy, and to keep on pressing on for the glory of God. Your homework this week is to read chapter 7. Some of you peeked ahead and you saw a lot more names that you wish Isaac Paley would read for you. I know that. <laughs> I get it. But your homework is to read chapter 7 because there's a shift that happens. And sometimes in your Bible reading, you might think, oh, all these names, let me get through this and get to the good stuff. Every name was a life lived. Every name was a personality. Every name the Holy Spirit thought was worthy to be recorded in Scripture. Now, that don't mean I think you're going to get a passage in Nehemiah 7 and put it over your bed at night and crochet it and it'd be a life verse. But it matters. All Scripture's profitable. Here's your kind of header for chapter 7 in your reading this week. Press on with more yet to do. There's a shift that happens in chapter 7. We shift from the wall to the real work of building people, which is a lot harder. Newsflash, spoiler alert, it takes a lot longer than 52 days to build people right? If it took that long, I'd have a YouTube channel called 52 Days to a Healthier. It's probably already out there. Don't go look. <laughs> Pressing on with more yet to do. People aren't projects. Remember that. The Bible calls us as Christians to be sober-minded, to be watchful, to remember that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He fires darts of confusion and scandal and compromise and division. He's firing them at homes, single men and women, teenagers, tweens, our elementary kids now. He's firing them at families, big and small, all points in between. He's firing them at churches. And I would humbly say, and I think an elder would say this on my behalf if they had the microphone, but he fires them at your pastor as well and your pastor's family. I'm grateful for your prayers. A few darts may have landed in a pew already this week. Can I just encourage you? Don't pull away from Christ. Don't pull away from the things that pull you toward Christ. Don't let confusion or compromise or scandal or, or anything pull you away from reality, truth, beauty. Keep on pressing on. Let's pray.
Father, because of where we are and what day it is, I don't need to remind you or tell you anything, Lord, but the imagery is sticking clearly with some of us. The imagery of the horror of September 11th, those years ago, when this nation was attacked. And one of the haunting sounds that I remember of that day, Father, are the, the footage that, and you heard the sirens of emergency workers who had mobilized and who were heading toward the raging inferno, laying down their lives willingly in the hope that they might save some. Lord, they had counted the cost and became heroes in many ways for our nation because they believed the work they were doing was worth it. Certainly we, as men and women and boys and girls who claim to be children of the Most High God, Christians walking in the Spirit, should have that same conviction, that same courage, putting on the whole armor, suiting up for what's ahead. With that shield of faith quenching all the fiery darts of the enemy so that we might do the work that you've called us to do in the way that you've called us to do it so that people don't celebrate us, but they come to know you as Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let the church say amen.